And again, Janet Lee, thank you so very much. Sometimes your playing reminds me of a spring, and sometimes it reminds me of an orchestra. God bless you. <clears throat> and hello, hello out there, everybody. We are so happy to have you with us on this day of broadcast. And today, yes, is Sunday, January 31st, the last day of the month of January. Tomorrow is the second month, February, for this year, 2016. And today, we are into the Exodus escape number 14, under the title, Enchanted Holy Fire. Well, let's read the mail-out that we sent and sort of comment on that. In the whim to claim superior religious insight, some theologians, by hiding the keys of knowledge, Luke 11.52. In Luke, it describes these theologians as lawyers, as what was a name that they were sometimes called at that time. We see that there have always been people who have their own ideas about interpretation and about how people should follow codes of, of law, codes of living, and uh, that related, related not only to the physical, literal ideas of life, but to the religious and spiritual ideas. And we see that Jesus did not think too much about that. He felt that they were taking away the keys of knowledge from the people. But the Word of God cannot abide in a becalmed state, controlled by brain waves of the anti-Holy Spirit mentalities. Therefore, a calling for the rise of Moses as a destinata, called to meet the burning bush face to face, Exodus 3, 1 through 6, KJV, suddenly set on fire with seething energies of the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. Moses is mine imbued with visions brighter than a hundred billion stars. It is such a person who, though raised from boyhood, on the palace war deck of the Pharaoh became drawn to a center, or to enter rather, a close God encounter of the biblical kind. Soon Moses discover, discovers fiery transformations with enhancing powers that even tame antiparticles of nature. Like when he struck the rock, you know. The rock didn't seem like a place to go to get water. But when he struck that hard, dry-looking rock, it, its anti-nature changed into a flow of, of water. Little did he understand the unknown of the unknown about the lighthouse of, the lighthouse of God's love, which at the burning bush began drawing him to the bright and shining path of holy passion for the lost souls of Israel. God's love is a burning, consuming fire that makes no ashes, which flames of mercy never go out. There is a power on earth or in the universe. There is no power on earth or in the universe that can stop this power of God's burning love 
It is a book of life. The dictionaries of the subcultures of unbelievers collide with the all things are possible dictionary of this manifest word revealed in God's book of life. The blaze of this message of Exodus Escape 14, Exodus Escape 14, Enchanted Holy Fire, will create seamless memories in you that will warm your innermost being for time on and on and on. You know, in the the last uh, several days, I've had an experience, especially happens to me at night. And as I'm either sitting to meditate or, or I'm just uh, waiting to try to go to sleep, sometimes I have heard this very strong wind blowing. And I'm thinking, where is that coming from? Did we leave a fan on somewhere? Is there a window open? And, <clears throat> and then it came to me that this was a spiritual wind. So to prove that, I plugged up my ears so that I could not hear any naturally or natural created wind. And I plugged it up, and it was very clear because I could not hear anything else if I scratched on you know the table nearby or turned the pages of the book I could not hear any of that but I could still hear this very strong blowing wind and then I realized it was like on the days of Pentecost kind of wind and there's and suddenly there came a mighty rushing wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And so I, I know by this experience that God was telling me that these things of the teachings right now were very relevant and very, very important to be told. <clears throat> they were by the Holy Spirit. They were by the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. Well, I, I need to go back in, and to a little bit of last week's teaching about the callings. And um, toward the end, we talked about the name, the name of God, the name of Jesus. And uh, I feel it's really extremely important to go back over that. <coughs> Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the Tetragrammaton. These are the four letters that are given in the Bible, the Old Testament, that are, con uh, that are uh, considered to be the name of God. Now, where did that come from? Well, it's in the book of uh, Genesis, and um, <clears throat> it's, there's two important places that relate. Both of these places uh, relate um, because they connect uh, to, to, to the meaning. One of them is in Exodus 3.14, where Moses says, well, 
you know, when the Pharaoh begins to ask me, well, who is this that's giving you all these instructions and telling you to come and talk to me and, let, and have the, the people of Israel to be released? And he says, you shall tell them, <clears throat> you shall tell them that I am, that I am, or I am who I am, has sent you. And that is found in Exodus 3.14. Then in Genesis 2.4, we have the first use of the word Lord, in which most of your Bibles use all of the capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And uh, it is uh, given in the... Um, uh, the chapter that says, you know, these are the generations of the earth and the heavens in the day that God, the Lord, made them. And the word Lord there in Genesis 2-4 is given in the text as uh, four letters. And those four letters are Y-H-W-H. Now, Y-H-W-H can also be Y-H-V-H because H, uh, because W and V are interchangeable uh, translational-wise as uh, we need to understand what the meaning of those words are. It could be either one. And... Um, I, I, I tried to briefly share something with you last week and I sort of um, bumbled over it because I had so much to, to, to me speak on. But I talked about, um, about it and I, I feel I'm supposed to go back over it and I'm supposed to go into more detail on this thing about the name of God, the name of Jesus, the name of the Lord. It is a very, very important thing. Now, how does this work into the Exodus escape? Well, it would have never come about without the Exodus escape. And you could ask yourself the question, when did Moses write the book of Genesis and the other scriptures, the other scriptures in the other books, like Exodus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy? Well, he certainly didn't write them when he was acting out being a son of, of the Pharaoh. He certainly didn't write them until after he had fled for his life to Midian. And then during that whole transition, when God began to speak to him at the burning bush. And what was he doing? Well, he was leading some of the, the herd, the sheep. He was leading them out, maybe looking for some different kind of pasture, better feeding ground. And he was close to this mountain, which was a sacred mountain. <coughs> And um, he, um, 
suddenly saw a fire. And it was a bush. Well, the expectation from experience is that when something is burning heftily, it burns down and becomes ashes. But in this experience, there was a sensation of something different and a visual of something different because the bush was not burning down. It was a continuum of flame. And so Moses began to experience his first connection to an enchanting holy fire and his first deep interest as to what such a an experience and a sighting would mean. Now he decided to come over and get closer to it. And in his Egyptian trained way of thinking, that seemed the answer. But in the spiritual episodic way of thinking, it definitely was not the answer. Because the way he was coming was being garbed in that mind and in that fabric with the style of life that was more to the anti-spiritual than it was to the spiritual. And so God, this voice had to say to him, take off your shoes. You're approaching, you're coming on holy ground. Something about this burning bush, something about this fire, this eternal fire that was different than any other kind of fire. It was not physical earth type of fire. It was a different kind of fire. It was a, an enchanting type of fire because it enchanted Moses. It drew him to want to know what this was. He didn't say, oh, this is scary. Oh, I, don't, I don't like this. I'm getting out of here. He was drawn to discover and to know what it was. So he had already made his first exodus escape. He had fled for his life to Midian to get away from being killed by the Pharaoh because he had slain an Egyptian, an Egyptian soldier who was doing his duty over the slaves of the Israelites. And that fire experience and bush experience was a result of his first exodus escape. And it was a result of, the, of a continuum of the whole plan and the whole revelation of the exodus escape. Because it was there that one of the greatest, most incredible things was put on the menu for being by destiny understood by Moses and revealed, therefore, to Moses. And that was, what was the name of God? At that time, the earth world was full of all kinds of pantheons, so to speak. 
all kinds of places of worship that believed in poly type of gods. Gods of every nature. Gods of the sun, of the stars, gods of the weather, gods of harvest, animal type gods, poly type gods. And so the name of God was important to be able to reveal the difference of this particular God who had the power of eternal fire and who had the power to seemingly create a causation that that fire was burning in a bush. There somehow was something that appeared branch-like something that came out that had parts to it that in the wilderness area only made sense for it to be some kind of unusual bush because after all, this was the wilderness area. So, it is the Exodus escape that encompasses and encloses the awesome thing of the Tetragrammaton, the four letters of the name of God. Now in translation, those four letters are shown to be YHWH or YHVH. Those two can interchange either way. And so we have interpretations of that word we have those that have interpreted that it should be a YHWH. And then the way it works in the Egyptian, uh, not pardon me, not Egyptian, but in the Hebrew language, um, you have to add the vowels. And the vowels can be verified as to what they should be based on what the contextual of the text or of the sentence of that is being spoken. That tells you what vowels to add. Now, vowels, you know, we're talking like the five vowels, A-E-I-O-U. So then, in order to know what the word is, you have to add the vowels. So you have Y-H-W-H. Let's start with that. So now you add a vowel in between the Y and the H. And you can choose whatever you want based on what the context is. And what the context was, was if they ask my name, tell them that my name is YHWH. Now, someone will say, well, actually what it said there was tell them my name is I am and I am and that that is to be from generation to generation forever and ever. But when you translate the meaning of I am, which means to be and means existence, and by the way, <laughs> this is very interesting. 
One of the words, when you look up the word I am, and you get into the Hebrew, like the use the Strong's Concordance, one of the word, words for that word am is escape. So the very aspect of escape is imbued also within the nameplate of that word. And so this whole revelation of the escape and the name is something ordained by the angels under Moses because it has incredible authenticity and confirmation. So then when you see that, that the way also means the name, and who's it the name of? Well, it's the name of God of the Lord. So when he says the, the way and the way, when he says I am and I am, and you're told that's the name of, of, of God, the name of the Lord, and then the first use of the word Lord, the capital Lord that connects to this idea of, of to be and all of these other meanings is found, as I said earlier, in the second chapter of the fourth verse of Genesis when it's talking about the creation of the earth and so forth. So now, what do the translators do? Well, they take this and they make their translation of it, Yahweh. But, you know, I, I don't knock that. That is a potential that can be done. But I don't agree with it. Because here's how the rules go. In the Hebrew translation, you are expected, when it is needed, to double the constants. So that means if you have only one Y in the constant, and that finishes out a name, and thus whole contextuality is about name, then you double that constant. So you take the first constant, Y, and you add the first vowel, A, and then the following constant, H, and you, got, you have Yah. Now because contextually this is supposed to be describing the name of God, then if you take and you use that W instead of an A, and then you add an A there, you get, you get wa. And so then, since we're talking the name, that the, the, the uh, and because in, in Hebrew you read the name uh, backwards anyway, you, you double then the constant to a W instead of a Y. You go the other way. So what you would really be doing is you would have created a name, Wawa. And then you would be calling God Wawa. And that just does not make any uh, poetry sense, have any beauty to it, any reality to it, any constant to it, and any true interpretation to it. 
to call God Wawa because that does not line up with all the rest of the scriptures in the contextuality. So now, it is very important then, instead of having, you know, uh, the idea, uh, you know, of, of uh, as I tried to roughly, briefly explain it last week, uh, the W-A-W-H-W-H, uh, because that's when you force the constant, uh, constants uh, to double and go backwards, go the opposite direction than how we usually read, which is the way that is read by the Hebrew. And so then, why did they decide to use the, an E for a vowel instead of an A? Because they had the choice. So they ended up Yahweh, W-E-H. They added an E, but then, truthfully, that does not make sense to add that as a vowel. Because, you know, they're just bringing that out of nowhere. I mean, there's no reason for it. And since you're creating the name, it makes a whole lot more sense when you use what is legal to do because it means the same thing. You're using a V. When you use the V as we do in the translation of the manifest teachings, you end up with, with, a, with a letter that means um, and, A-N-D. So then, when you follow that word after the yah, the first yah, you get yah and, and now you have an h. And then because uh, you, can, you can double, uh, 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 you know, the, the, um, uh, the missing letter contextually, that, that then allows you to, to put a Y in front of the H, and then you have to add a vowel. And when you add the same vowel that you added in the first one, you get another yaw. Therefore, you get yaw and yaw, because you have the V, yaw and yaw, which is the beautiful, beautiful revelation that was being given to, to Moses, the Yah and the Yah, because what do you get there? You get the Father Yah and you get the Son Yah. So you got the Father Yah and the Son Yah, and guess what? They both have the same name. They both have Yah and Yah. So when the Bible is telling us to, to ask in the name of the Son, for the mountain to be moved or for the healing to be done. The, the son has the, the son, Jesus, has the same, same original na given name as the Father. So when G Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray in my name, he says, look, let's get this straight. And this is in John, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, I don't do what are my ideas. I don't preach my ideas. My ministry is not my idea of ministry. I do what the Father tells me to do. Whatever the Father tells me to do, that is what I do. Okay, so um, when we get into this thing of the um, consonants, and, and, and I know that most people like to call them consonants, you know, uh, but I, I like to connect them to the constant, like in, 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 in uh, um, uh, science, when you're talking about the different constants of nature. <laughs> and, I'm, and I sort of do the same thing to that word that I do to, to uh, 
uh, acceleration. Uh, changed the A to an X, acceleration from the word excellent. So I do all kinds of things, and sometimes I forget to tell the people what I'm doing, uh, and I don't apologize, but I love you anyway. Uh, but I love it when you, you catch on, that's good. Okay, so now, let's see what we're doing. He says, my father taught me how to do the resurrection. This is in John. So the name of Jesus, which is a transliteration, not a true translation, which means a transliteration, they use the, the, the different uh, kinds of like Aramic and, and uh, Latin and Greek uh, to, to create a word that gets as close to the sound as that sound would be, uh, going back uh, like to Joshua and some of those other related terms, uh, uh, but uh, how they would sound if they're translated. If you've ever noticed that when you're reading in the Bible, uh, uh, you know, and, and it says Elijah, but in, but in the Old Testament, Elijah, but in the New, New Testament, Elias. It, it, the, the change happens due to the, the change that occurs uh, of translating uh, uh, a word uh, from, from an original uh, into a different language. And so uh, we, we have all kinds of things. And, and, and then sometimes when they do the transliteration, and this is a known fact, uh, then you end up not really having what would be an equal translation. It's, it's a transliteration. It's more interested trying to produce a certain sound of how uh, a, 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 a sound would be uh, in its um, Greek form and carry that forth on into English, and to do that, uh, then you, uh, by transliteration, uh, you ended up with the name Jesus, which in my opinion is a beautiful name. I love it. Um, and, and, but now, we understand when it says in the name of, pray in the name of Jesus, means pray in, the, in what the name of Jesus is. And some people say, well, the name of Jesus is Jesus. The name of the the name that that Jesus had as his creation name is the Father's name. Now, interestingly, there are some interesting scriptures, and I won't turn to read them, but in Hebrews one one through five, it basically say it says that Jesus inherited his name from God. So we have a scripture telling us that, that his name came from God. It was God's doing and so forth. And in Philippians 2, 9 through 10, the scripture says that the name that he has was conferred on him by the Father. That's Philippians 2, 9 through 10. So now when you see this conferring of the Father's name upon him, well, the Father's name, uh, let's start in the first narrative, is Yah. So when we say Yah and Yah, we have perfectly given, given the name of Jesus, the Yah, which then conveys back to the word 
a, a Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital, uh, you know, the, uh, D, and and you find that in the concordance of H three O six eight, and where it when you look at H O three H O when you look at H three O six eight H for Hebrew, in the Strong's Concordance Dictionary, what do you get? You get the word Lord, and what does it show there? It shows Y-H-W-H, or it can mean Y-H-V-H, and it does explain in there, uh, if you look very carefully at the uh, 3068, uh, a heya, and a comma, and a V. And, and so you have that classified information of the V right there in, in the uh, document of the dictionary, and now we begin to see that I've given you the scripture to show that that this is the name of Jesus. And so people say, well, you know, well, I know what the name of Jesus is, and it's Jesus. Well, almost anyone will tell you that if you were uh, uh, alive back in the days that Jesus was on earth, and you were walking up to people and say, where is Jesus? And they would look at you and say, what are you talking about? Because his name was closer to being pronounced Yahshua. And, and if you said Yahshua, which was, was, uh, uh, came off in a translation from the word Joshua, and, and then there's all these different connections to Yah, uh, then you would have understood things in a much more deeper way when Jesus says, when you pray, here is how you are to pray. My Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. So the kingdom that is to come, the name that is to come, the name that is hallowed is the Father's name. Now, there is another deeper meaning of Yah and Yah that has been lost in the Tetragrammaton. And there is a day for that to be revealed. Uh, but... That's, that's, that's coming. So, so uh, now you're beginning to see something really beautiful <coughs> and really important. And we begin to see why this whole thing about the fire and the name is so important and why that in Exodus 13.21, it talks about the pillar of the cloud by night, night Pardon me, the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. This is a pillar that holds up the doctrines and the revelations and the insights and the power of the deep, deep word that is still to come. It is so absolutely, incredibly important. Jesus Christ, oh, Jesus the anointed one. Jesus Christ said in John 14, I'm going away. I'm going to the Father. What else did he say? Well, he said, you know, I came out of the Father. I'm going to the Father because I came out of the Father. And that was his confession. 
I came from the Father, I came into the world, I leave the world and go unto the Father. So this connection with the Father is essential, it's important, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. It is all about the Exodus escape because without the Exodus escape and the very word I am has the word escape in it, you'd be missing the deep and beautiful thing. Now, let me just really fast read this again. I read it last week. And this is from the Seventh Thunder Book, 187. Although to us physical creatures, time has relevance, time in the first domain does not exist. Consequently, Alpha and Omega occur at the same event. Now here we see two different words spelled two different ways. One meaning beginning, one meaning ending, seeming to be as far apart as you could possibly get. But in the spiritual context, they happen at the same time. They therefore merge and become one and the same meaning. And you have this same thing with Jesus Christ. He is merged into the Father. When you see me, he says, you have seen the Father. And he... he and He's, he's understanding that the Father is invisible. And no man has seen the Father, Jesus said, and is able to live. That's why you can't come to the Father except through Jesus, who you can see. Because he is the image of the Father expressed in the physical. And that's why there has to be the translation that goes over from this idea of the physical manifestation to the spirit manifestation. And you get that when you change the spirit from the physical. Oh, it is so awesome. Let me finish just reading this now. Subsequently, calculating from the perspective that every luma number, every luma number has three positions, four functions. Four functions can be derived by a minus plus being divided by a plus. Like a minus, then a plus, then a division sign, then a plus, where the indices, which means these little mathematical uh, figures, like the minus and the plus are shown as variables, and where minus and plus equal two positions of equal volume but of opposite energy. And people have not often thought of that. That when you have something that is a, a plus, which means to add, and something that is a minus, which means to subtract, that they seem to be so differentiated that they could never have a relativity or a relative aspect of being the same. And by the same way, the Alpha and the Omega are, that, are into that score. And by the same way, we have Jesus Christ manifested in a physical mass body, and God manifested in an anti-mass body being invisible. And yet, there is this parallel of sameness, an important same thing in this math. Janet Lee at the organ.
Once again, Janet Lee, that spring of water of the melody of life is springing up. God bless you. Okay, let's go on back to page 187 out of the uh, Seven Thunders Manifest Chronicles before Genesis and just finished this. Okay, so we have these, these minus and pluses. And um, then let's go on and let's read, um, you know, the different things that it equals. Uh, are, they're showing as veritables where the minus and the plus equal two positions of equal volume but of opposite energy, and where division equals a third position of an equal rate. And uh, let's see here. However, um, and, and just for the spelling on that, with my famous enunciation there, position and E-Q-U-I-L-I-B-R-A-T-E, equilibrate. However, <coughs> when plus, the plus sign is directly preceded by division, the division sign, it equals four functions. Being, again, hold on this, we read it last week, Y-H-W-H, as follows. Y, as represents place. H, as represents was. W as represents is, and whether it would be a WRV, uh, that same meaning could be uh, could be uh, a parallel, and H as represents to be, because you have it in two different locations, with the spaces in between the letters. Furthermore, the square of these functions generates one constant, one of timelessness, y and three variables of time, H, Y, H, being past, present, and future. Okay, we'll stop there and go on because there's so much to cover. All right, so now you begin to get the idea how that Y, H, V, H, instead of Y, H, W, H, is how, what the manifest uses to get yaw and yaw. And, uh, and the I am who I am, or am that I am, uh, can means to be, um, and can also mean uh, to escape, and it can mean the way, it can mean yah and yah. Wow. Now, we have four letters, four letter letters, Y-H-V-H, or Y-H-W-H, four. It's interesting how this is all revealed to Moses as part of the Exodus escape insight and information. You have four mental categories that are based on four axes or axes. And uh, this was once put through out through a psychologist uh, called, I call him uh, Jung. And... Um, uh, one, inverted or extroverted personality or psychological expression. Two, intuitive or sensing. Three, feeling or thinking. Four, perceiving or judging. And those are the four mental categories, each having their own axis connection. Interesting of the four. Then you have, in nature, fire, earth, air, and water. And then you've got in weather, hot and dry, 
cold and dry, hot and wet, cold and wet. And those are the four of the nature. Then you have in geometry, uh, tetrahedron, the cube, the octahedron, uh, and 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 the um, the uh, icosahedron, and you got these four different uh, terminative, conclusive type of shapes in geometry that are very very important for 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 the uh, understanding of geometry, and and for the story that it tells, and then you've got the balance of the universe as to the, the life forces of existence, uh, the, full, the four forces, uh, as understood, that are dimensional forces that hold the universe uh, together under the idea of cosmology. And, and those being the uh, one force, the electromagnetic, uh, the, uh, the nuclear forces of the strong force and the weak, and gravity. And then you have the extra dimension they add, the add by the, called the dimension of, of time. <coughs> so, in the middle of all of that, uh, that's just a few of the things that you have that start getting related uh, to this idea of, of four. Uh, you have, you have uh, the code of life. Uh, the letter A for, for adenine, uh, T for quanine, uh, G for, for cytosine, uh, and, and uh, C for uh, bonds. And, uh, and these represent the strands and the coils of the RNA and the DNA. And it's an interesting that we've got these four that tie in to the, the interpretation ideas of the Tetragrammaton, the four letters of God. <coughs> now, um, there is a, a, a fairly great scientist that lived called Co Copenhagen, and he came up with an uh, interpretation of the quantum matrix mechanics. Now, not all of you understand all of what that's about, but I think you're not, you need to listen really, diff really deeply. Uh, because you've got Einstein's theory of relativity. You also have Einstein's theory <coughs> of quantum. And the, the one theory is about the large of the cosmology, and the other theory is about the small of the cosmology, like atoms and molecules and, and, and particles. So when it talks about you know the relativity of of the of the large. We get into stars and planets. <coughs> when we get into the uh, the quantum of the small, uh, you get into the more invisible things, of which the Bible says <coughs> that things that are seen are made of things that do not appear. Okay, excuse all my coughing today. Um, okay, so now. Uh, this Copenhagen came up with this cons this this uh, quantum matrix mechanics theory, and he says that when you are looking by observation, even microscopically, at the function of particles and atoms, 
and what constitutes their, their flux, their spins, their actions, perhaps their trajectories. When you do that, when you do that observation, it collapses the probabilistic wave function and changes the action. Now that sounds like something that is not even to be believed, but it has stood the test in science. And they have done different tests that comes pretty close to proving that there is a concept here that has reality. That if you try to look in on what some of these so-called invisible actions are and what they are doing and narrow them down and gauge them uh, so that you get both sides of the picture, the anti, uh, the positive, uh, that you cannot get, nature will not allow you to be able in one instant to see the picture of both the sides of nature at the same time. Both that which is negative and both that which is positive, uh, which can be just a different kind of a charge. And, and because the minute that you uh, set up a feature, whether it's a telescope, a microscope, any other kind of method, and you start to look on and onto it to size it from both of those those positions, it collapses the probability of the wave function and changes the direction. Now we know that 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 waves and particles can be the same thing. Like a photon can be a wave, and it can be it can be a uh, a particle. And, and there was the, the, the slit test that showed that it could be both that they tested. And so it shows that there are tests that can be done that can change a array that can be a particle and a wave so that it can change from being a particle to being a wave or change from being a wave to being a particle. But will not allow you to be able to see it being both a wave and a particle at the same time. And therefore, this scientist, Copenhagen, called it the causation that collapses the probabilistic wave function and changes the action. Now there's other people that have other ideas that are a little different than Copenhagen's, and they're, they're pretty far out too. One other scientist says, well, his idea is that the future effects actually change the past. And another scientist says, well, he thinks that the whole of creation is entangled. So there is a realization here that if something that you as a human force do, who has a mind, a thinking capability, a research determination ability, and you put that energy of the mind thought upon this acting nature quantum experience, that it will allow you to see one part of it, but it will not allow you to see its opposite parts at the same time. Therefore, it has to mean it, that it shows that the mind force has a tremendous effect 
on the smallest things, and these are some pretty powerful things, because they can include all the four forces of nature uh, that are along the lines of what we talked about when we talked about electromagnetic, uh, the weak and, and strong force of, of the nuclear force and, and, and uh, gravity, that, that this mind force can collapse the wave and change it. Is that what Jesus did when gravity was wanting to pull him down into the, to the Sea of Galilee? Did he collapse the gravity wave force? And changed it into being a substance instead of just a wavery, vacant thing so that he could walk on it? There is something very real here and very powerful. Now, we have to really, really get into all the meanings of these, these possibilities because they open up a world that is totally awesome. We know that in Psalms 104.30 it says, Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. The scripture is saying that something that was invisible, the spirit, but something that nevertheless had a mind, was able to act on, change the torques, change the spins, change the, the trajectories, change whether it was a positive or a negative charge. And that could all be done by the mind force. And there's scriptures for that. And the universe is an infinity, so to speak. You can't put an end of a space. It's just too vast to do that. And yet, the Bible says that, whether shall I go from the Spirit? For whether, I, or whether shall I flee from, from thy presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. The Spirit... It's everywhere that there's any indication of there being any kind of physical life or constellations. And it helps verify the, the, the fact that the Bible says that a body without the spirit is dead. And the body of, of the universe is dead without the spirit. So obviously there's lots of spirit there. Now, we're going to to really move into some new areas that are so important with this, these four letters that represent many, many different things. They represent some things that have to do with genetics. And these genetics are powerful driving forces that you have to deal with. And how do you overcome some of these genetics that want to drive you 
Well, there has to be a power of forgetting and letting go. A power to forget and let go of the hurtful experiences and memories that rise of, a, of, of the actions of the body. You have to somehow learn how to accentuate the hormone of love and to engender from that how to put yourself in a virtual reality that orbits a star until your personal negative thought that is influencing you in a negative way and hurting you subsides. So we're entering a new dawn of awareness. The knowledge for setting free the consciousness and the comprehensive ability of one's own spirit within. Going into the past effects written in the human genome of embryonic maps. And we're redrawing their genetic prophecies. There are genetic prophecies in every human being based on their genes. And every cell of your body, whether it's a cell of your hair or a cell of your skin, it has a chromosomes, and in those chromosomes are, 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 are cells, genes, gene cells. Now, when God was telling Moses that there were people that did not represent the destinata, that did not represent the forward plan of God. And they were abiding in the promised land. And they had to be kicked out. And he didn't just mean kick out the warriors, but he says, I want you to kick out the mothers, the fathers, and the children. Now the original plan that was given him was that this would be done by the angels. And the angels would use plagues and, and natural things like hornets. And the hornets would just drive these people right out of the land. And that was the original plan. But as you know, the, the over 600,000 individuals that were the army that represented the fathers who represented the children of Israel who went a different route than what they did, that those people ended up failing. And they were never allowed to remain alive and go over into Jordan. And why did they fail? Because the Bible says that most all of those tribes ended up allowing, even after, the, after their children went into to, 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 uh, Canaan, they ended up allowing in all those different lands those, those people to, to live there among them. They allowed that. Now, why did God not want that? Because he was doing a lattice purification on the genome. And he really recognized something about the genome that those people had. Well, when the army idea took over, and when they got to looking at some of these lands and seeing the riches that they had, they wanted to be soldiers and they wanted to go out and they wanted to just kill those people. But everything was done greedily. And one time, 
when there was this pr uh, prophet, uh, Balaam, who gave um, the Midianites a plan to defeat the Hebrews. He said, your women are beautiful. Send your women out there to tempt those soldiers, and God will smite them with a plague. And that's exactly what did happen. And hundreds of thousands of the Hebrews died. But when they did that, God revealed what Balaam had did. God revealed what was done. And so what, what, what came out of it? God said, okay, now, the Midianites who supported Moses in his escape from Israel, they have gone over the line, and now they must be destroyed. Well, the men wanted to go out. They wanted to do the killing. But what did they do? They didn't follow the rule. They brought back all the women. And in that group of women were the same prostitutes that had caused the plague to Israel. And Moses said, what in the world do you think you have done? You've saved alive these women that were sent out by Balaam that tempted the children of Israel and caused their death by the plague. What in the world is the matter with you? So then he compromised and allowed them to kill all of those people, but save alive only the young people that were girls, that were ladies, young people that had never lain with a man. But you see, that wasn't the original plan. It was, it was, it was different than that. So, what was that about? It was about doing something about the genetics. Because there's a whole story on this thing of the gen genetics that is extremely, very, very important. And I want to share that with you because I think that it's something you've got to know and it's something you've got to have an insight to because without these insights, you'll misunderstand what the Bible is even talking about. Now, I, I don't want to miss talking about some of the real important things about the fire. Have you ever wondered what it meant when in the New Testament it talks about getting the Holy Ghost and fire? And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I want to make sure I just don't get missed because it's an incredible revelation. Well, first off, the Holy Ghost is not the same as the Holy Spirit. Although there is a simulance there, there is a difference. Because you can have the Holy Spirit and not be full. Not be full. You can only have a partial of the Holy Spirit. And that is one of the reasons why... Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. There is a difference of being filled and a difference of having something partial. Now, when you get filled, it, you, it, it, it becomes a personification. That's the ghost. But until it becomes, you're filled with, the, with it, it is not a personification. And it's spirit. It's different. It's like energy, spirit, it's like energy. You have so, so much of that. You can go out and, 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 
and fill up your tank with gasoline, or you can just put a few dollars worth in that you feel at the time you can afford. So that's what the ghost thing means. Now, what does the fire thing mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean the kind of fire you heat with. It certainly doesn't mean the kind of fire that's in burning in the stars and in the sun, which is a star. Well, what does it mean? It means something very beautiful. The Holy Ghost in fire is talking about the Holy Ghost and love. The fire of the Holy Ghost is the fire of love. And when you get filled with the Holy Ghost and love, which is the fire, you are into the enchanting fire that called Moses to the burning bush, which is a pillar. Because it was described in the book of, of 13th and 14th chapters of, of, of Exodus, how that this fire was a pillar of smoke by day, of cloud by day, like Shekinah smoke, Shekinah glory, and by night it was a pillar of fire. And what we know that that pillar of fire really was, was described in the 68th chapter of the book of Psalms, the 17th verse, where it says, that at the Mount Sinai, at the wilderness area, 20,000 angels came down to minister to Moses on this whole revelation of the escape. And those angels were driven to do this by their love for the fallen angels, the Ophanim. And that's what the full revelation of the burning bush was. And God descending and ascending to deliver these people. And in his appearance of the Yah and the Yah to, to Moses. So as we come into this new dawn of, a, of awareness and we begin to, to recognize all the things that are to happen, we have to realize that this escape goes all of the way back to when God spoke to Abraham and said, I want you to get out of Ur. I know it's close to Babylon. I know this, this is a big and powerful place to live, but it's anti-spiritual. I want you out of here. I want you to go to a, I want you to find a city not made by hand. And, a, and I want you to find the king who's there. Melchizedek. And one time when Abraham was there and he had he had had a a child by a concubine and he he fell in love with that child and he did not want to not have that child connected in the main things 
of what he represented. But God had a different plan. God had a different plan. And I want you to be very aware of everything that this message is saying to you today because it's incredible. Now, he had a wife whose name was Hagar. And she was an Egyptian, and she bare him a son called Ishmael. And Ishmael, he lived a long time. He lived 137 years. And he wasn't just a nobody. The Bible says that these are the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names by their towns and by their castles. These offspring of Ishmael built castles. I believe these were the first time that anything like that was mentioned in the Bible. Sometimes the castles were called palaces. And they, there was, of his offspring, there were 12 princes according to their nations from the towns of Havilah to Shur, which is before Egypt as you go toward Assyria. And Ishmael lived so long, he died in the presence of all of his brethren. And there's some amazing names that come out of, of Ishmael, like Tema. T-E-M-A, and there's a scripture that says, and God came from Tema. So we've got princes, and we've got dukes, and we've got castles. And there are some amazing other things that we'll see about getting into in regard to that. But God had a plan, and that plan was for Isaac instead of Ishmael. And the seed of Ishmael became very populous and very powerful. But we will see by a prophecy that they were a very possessed of genies type of people. And the Bible describes that. How that these these people of the offspring of Israel, that they were a, a warring type of people that couldn't get along with each other. They were wild people. Now when Moses, pardon me, when God sent some men, they were actually angels, to Abraham, and he was in his tent, and as he looked out the door of the tent and he saw these three men coming, he got up and ran out there to see them. <coughs> In those days, they didn't have television. And it was a big thing to get visitors from afar because they could tell about lots of things that were going on in faraway places of the earth. And he ran out to me and he says, Hey, he says, I want you to come in. He says, You know, we'll, we'll, we'll have our servants wash your feet. We'll, we, we, we will... Uh, 
uh, feed you and, and, and want you to come and visit with us. They were totally human-looking, human-acting, had human bodies, and he did not recognize that the Bible says they were angels. And as they got to visiting with him, he told Abraham that Sarah, his wife, which was a very old woman now, and Abraham was a very old man now, but that she was going to become pregnant and going to end up giving birth to the covenant child. And Scripture says that Sarah laughed. She didn't think it's possible to have a child at her age. And the angels that were in men's men, human-looking bodies heard that. And then they conferred with each other, and they had a meeting. And this is very important. And they said, shall... And this one particular one, who was the head, head, head person, he said, shall I hide the thing from Abraham which I do? Have you ever thought about how the Bible says that sometimes you're entertained by angels unaware? Have you ever thought about that those might be times when the angels are saying, can I reveal myself to these persons or this person now? And because of maybe you're, you're just not being ready or your, your problems that you're fumbling around in with all your natural needs and desires, they have to just pass you by and you entertain angels unaware and not knowing, just like Abraham was just about to do. Of course, when he made the prophecy about Sarah and having a child, he knew then that was a God thing. And so they're talking, they said, should I hide this thing that we're about to do? And so they discussed it. And what was the factor? What was the factor that made them decide to tell Abraham? An amazing thing that is a deep, incredible revelation. It said, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation... And all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. I think we better tell him. This means that something that hadn't even happened. And, and Paul caught that. He saw that, that it was accounted to Abraham by faith. Things that had not even happened. Things that were quite a distance off. But that even though they didn't happen, were going to happen, and because they were going to happen, they were being ascribed to him and given the credit of those things, and he got the credit of those things because he actually represented a nation. And we're going to see how big that, that, that thing is about nations and how that... And we're going to see that that it's a major thing, and it's a major revelation. And so they told him, what did they tell him? They said, we have come to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he had, a rel he had relatives over there, Abraham did. And they said, oh my God, oh my God, is there any way? And he started going down through the numbers. Well, wonder, wonder if, you know, there's, there's a... There must be a million people there. Wonder if there's a, a thousand. Would you... Would you, would you 
Would you not destroy him? He said, no, okay, we won't. If there'd be that many people. <clears throat> well, I wonder if there's only 100. And he goes through the whole thing. Finally, he gets down to 10. Wonder if there's only 10 people. Please don't be angry at me, but wonder if there's only 10. Would you not for the sake of those 10 people? And they said, yes. If we could find even 10 people, we would spare that huge and mighty number of people. Now you begin to get an idea how that there was a concentration of genes that were so evil, so genie, so not susceptible to, susceptible to believing in God and angels and heaven, that in that whole huge multitude of people, there was not even 10 individuals that could be found that were candidates. Now we begin to see why God was saying, we got to move these people out. This cannot be their land. Because they will contaminate you. And you'll intermarry and you'll start getting their genes. And the whole idea of the separation between the two mountains, it was called. The mountain of the bond woman and the mountain of the covenant woman will be intermingled. That was in Galatians. Now what does that mean when a person, a singular, single solitary person can represent a nation. In Genesis 25, 23, it speaks about Rebecca, and she's pregnant. And the Bible says two nations are in her womb, and two manner of people. And those two persons were called Esau and Jacob. But they were called nations even though they were singularities at the time. Now, this is another case in which this thing of the nations come up. When Hagar was sent away and had to leave the camp of Abraham and separate her son Ishmael from Isaac, that was very difficult for Abraham. It's hard to know about the genes in a person. It's hard to know about the genies. Sometimes in the Bible, when it's talking about casting out demons, not in every case, but in some cases, it was actually talking about casting out genies. And here's what it said about Ishmael. And he shall be a wild man, and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. Genesis 16, 11 through 12. And Genesis 21, 18 says, when he's trying to comfort Hagar, but I will make him a great nation. A single person alluded to 
being a great nation, and we see the dukes and the castles, and we see the palaces, and we see all these these pretty powerful entities that are offspring. And we know that that when a person or a, or a nation represents is represented by one person, that there is an incredible asset there. Well, let me tell you this. In deferred progeny, we see how that Adam, there was the first Adam, the second Adam, and how that that seed of Adam was carried through the generations of Adam and through all of these different persons and tribes and people <clears throat> until it could finally reach to Jesus Christ. Well, there is so much more that is so important in this teaching. I mean, it is just really, really important. But I've come to the end of the time. <clears throat> what we're going to do next week is we're going to have part two of this teaching because it's not finished. And it's going to be so valuable to you to hear the rest of it and how these things were done and how this exodus escape and this enchanting fire and what it means. We'll finish that next week. Janet Lee at the Oregon.